0: This is Car Expert.
1: I think probably what will be the biggest impediment to the EQE is one, that styling, but two, that people will probably just want to wait for the EQE SUV. I
2: just feel like the G V60
3: is trying to be everything all at once, like a luxury car, a performance car and Volkswagen wants to make it very clear that it had a hand in developing the car, and I think it's definitely fair to say there are some ranger bits in there that will be recognizable if you've driven the other one, but it does feel like a VW in a number of key ways
0: welcoming this week on the car expert podcast william Stopford. hey mandy and hello jack quick hello mandy we're always loving all the photos you post when you go to uh, car shows Uh, you're currently based in melbourne and uh, highball cars and coffee is one of the best ones you can possibly go to and um the range of cars there is just absolutely mind-blowing
1: yeah, it is. Um, so I'd been to Highball twice before. I think I've even spoken about it in the podcast, but both of those times was when it was at the Bell Street Mall in Heidelberg. Um, and this time around, uh, the most recent one was at Bosch headquarters in Clayton. And it's one of those car shows where you walk into a parking lot and you think, oh, this is it. This is still a pretty good show. And then you keep walking and you realise there's another parking lot. And then you realise there's another parking lot full of cars. <laughs> and then you realise where you parked your own car, there was a bunch of really cool stuff that I guess there was just no room for. So I pull up in my press car and park right near a, a Lancia Delta Integrale. So- <laughs> what, what car were you in? Uh, oh, okay, remember what I was saying I got distracted by classics, So <laughs> it really just kind of goes to show you that that, that, that kind of set the tone for the rest of, of the event because mm. I just saw so much cool stuff. And because I'm oh, – I'm so obnoxious. I have to post long screeds on my Instagram. I'm not happy just putting up a photo. I want to go into a little bit of detail about the car. It means I'm just slowly churning through all of that. And then, of course, I go to another car show on the weekend, which was a um, a Japanese car show in... Uh, I still don't know Melbourne very well. Bandura, I think. B- Bandura, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. Um, Sakura um, was the the name of the show. And I, if, if for uh, Brisbane listeners or anybody visiting Brisbane, uh, one of the best car shows you can go to in Brisbane is All Japanese Day at Banyo. It's a giant school oval that is just absolutely covered with cars. Um, so this probably had a, a similar number of cars. Um, but, um, the advantage of having a car show in Brisbane is that the weather's not as crap. Um, <laughs> so of course, uh, I get it. It was probably the, the only space that was available. Um, but, um, it wasn't ideal to have a car show in a muddy field oh, um no. i think i managed to get all the mud off my nice shoes <laughs> <which> <laughs> just, it's, you know this is melbourne weather right it, it it's clear blue skies it was literally clear blue skies and then all of a sudden it's raining and oh. so i'm like oh, i go to get my umbrella i guess the car it stops raining and and so then i just <laughs> oh, it oh, it's definitely it's, melbourne this weather you know whereas i don't think it's ever rained on me at a, at a car show in brisbane um so look um, highball cars and coffee uh, was absolutely amazing and if you don't already follow me on Instagram uh, William stopford.cars um, is my Instagram account. I'm still sharing um, pictures uh, from the event. there was there were a few highlights for me that I just have to say right off the bat a Lamborghini Espada. Like Ooh. I'm somebody who goes to a car show and I tend, I generally walk past Ferraris and Lamborghinis because I've never really been that into supercars. Mm. So it's just like, you know, yeah, whatever. Um, and I've realised Alba was, or, or, and, and Paul and whoever else listening is probably thinking, Jesus, this guy's insane. Why did we hire him? <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's just it's not my thing. But the Sparta yes, I, I will I will stop to look. at. Uh, I also saw, and I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation here, did Aditamasa Longchamp. Uh, which was a a really, really attractive um, two plus two kind of grand tour uh, that was also sold um, as the, uh, I want to say the Maserati Kailami um, because Alejandro Di Tamaso bought, um, we owned Maserati for a period of time. Um, So there was some really cool stuff there, but the absolute highlight for me, and I must have talked the owner's ear off, (laughs) (laughs) A 1974 Pontiac Grand Am. I, I uh, the photos are up on my Instagram. I I just absolutely lost it because it's like my dream car of the 1970s. And anybody who knows me knows I'm a huge nerd about that. We weird, there's a weirdly specific 1970s American cars are just like my weird kind of kryptonite. I'm absolutely fascinated. I have so many books. I have so many ads in frames on, you know, on bookshelves. So um, yeah, that was, that was a real highlight for me. It had basically been sitting, it it was, it'd been sitting around for like 30 years or something. And then the guy imported it into the country. It's in beautiful condition. Um, So if you do ever see a car around with the license plate, my baby.
0: <laughs> no way.
1: <laughs> Just know that the guy is really nice and he really takes care of his car and it's stunning and gorgeous. Uh, but Highball, uh, sorry, not Highball, the um, Sakura so show was also interesting because Muddy Field side, there was some really cool stuff there if you're interested in Japanese cars. There was, of course, the, the usual kind of modified stuff, which, I mean, I'm cool, we one want to modify your car, that's fine. Uh, I know a lot of people love that. Not really for me. I love to go to car shows and see stuff that's bone stock, which is mm. great because there's plenty of that there. Probably the highlight for me was a Nissan President. Now, Mandy, you love older cars. Does that name ring a bell to you? No, it does not. How I'm about Toyota Century? Yes. Because uh, the President was basically uh, Nissan's rival to the Toyota Century. So, mm. you know, that kind of flagship sedan aimed at top executives and power players and whatnot in Japan. I've never seen one before in the middle.
0: Mid nineties?
1: Uh, they sold it smoke? for decades oh. so the, the last two generations were closely related to um the uh the contemporary infinity q45 um but the original generation was like it's its own thing and it's uh it's an imposing kind of almost american looking thing to see um with a really sumptuous interior so um there were plenty of centuries there as well people keep sending me photos of Century saying oh, i saw a century i'm like they're everywhere now like, <laughs> they're, know, they're supposed to be such an exclusive car but i swear like half the production runners ended up in Australia because I'm yep. constantly seeing them. So I'll, I'll only stop to take a photo if it's not black because most centuries are black. But then you see like a grey one or a blue one, and you're like, "Oh,
0: I saw um, a white one the other day. A white one. See, mm. there and it looks like
1: completely original. It oh, really, man. like, it really changes it. They had a grey one yep. at the Sakura show, which was um, a real highlight. But one final thing I will say, I'm trying to think um, what my other favorite car that I saw there was. Um, and I would probably have to say a second generation Izuzu Piazza. Oh, uh, cool. I
0: love those things.
1: Yes. So this was the generation we did not get here. Uh, the first generation was sold here briefly as a Holden and was a Huge flop. Um, there's even a book out there called In Search of the Holden Piazza, uh, where two guys travel around the country trying to find a piazza for sale. Oh my God. Um, I read it years ago. It was pretty entertaining. Uh, but there was a second generation model, which I believe switched to uh, front wheel drive. Um, there was also a, a sedan, a related sedan that was sold as a Gemini. Again, we didn't get that here. Um, so, an, I love going to car shows and seeing something I've never seen in the Mm. metal before. Uh, And Melbourne, look, I look, you guys here, you may have terrible weather, awful traffic, but your food is exceptional and your car shows are pretty, pretty, pretty good
2: now i just wanted to, to talk about how will's car knowledge just astounds me all the time just all of these like classic cars that i were released before i was born and i've only seen <laughs> posters of i never sat in he just knows literally everything and it blows my mind i um i recently went home uh over the easter break i um I don't think I've talked about it yet on the the podcast, but um, there was a my town called Warwick Nabil where I grew up um, has this annual Easter uh, car parade down the main street, and uh, they have like the classic all like Holden's and Fords and whatnot. But um, I put a photo up on my Instagram. I can do a cheeky plug of my Instagram too. Uh, (laughs) um, So uh, I saw it. I'm not certain if I'm pronouncing the the model name correct, but it's a, a Honda Concerto. Concerto. Yeah, I saw that, and I didn't really think that much of it. And I it was up in the video that I took that I put on my story, and Will messaged me. He's like, "Oh my god, is that a Honda Concerto?" And I'm like, um, "Yes." Uh-huh. I was just wondering, Will, could you fill me on a few of the details about that car? Because I'm really not that familiar with it, apart from just seeing it as like a, a liftback version of the Civic. That's correct, isn't it?
1: Uh, yes, I was, I was excited to see that because you don't see them very often. Weirdly, I took a photo of a concerto from my Instagram and it was like, my, like one of my most liked photos from last year and I have no what? idea why. <laughs> Yeah, it was. It was, and it wasn't even a good photo because I took it from an overpass at Sunnybank. Because I'm like, oh my god, a concerto! So I'm like zooming in, trying to get a good photo, and it was just hundreds of likes. Um, yeah, no, it was a, a hatchback that slotted in between the Civic and the Accord. It was only sold here for one generation. It was built in Japan and the UK. Our version was a little bit different from the UK-built version, uh, which was also rebadged as the Rover. 200 and 400, or at least a a very, a restyle and sold as over 200 and 400. Um, and the concerto was a successor of sorts to the, uh, Honda Quint from memory. So there's your fun Honda Concerto facts <laughs> for the day as if you needed them. <laughs> um, but, yes, ask me a question about Ferraris from history. <laughs> I have no freaking clue. Uh, I'll be texting our boys being like, hey, wh- what's this Ferrari? What? So.
0: That's, that's the best part about the car expert team is uh, we, we we all have our own niche and I think that's why it works. Because I, yes. I, I'm the same as you will. I get excited over like a 1984 Ford Laser. Yes. Um, because I think we can all relate to it. I can't relate yes. to a Ferrari. Exactly. Um, but I, I get how people are, you know, absolutely love, love those cars to death as well. So, <laughs> To talk about this week's car news, we've got Jade Credentino joining us once again. G'day, Jade. Hello, Mindy. How are you? Now, Jade, we've just got some pricing through for the Ford Mustang Mark E. How much are we up for with this one?
4: Pricing for the Ford Mustang Mark e has just been released and it starts from $79,99 before on-road costs with an extra premium paint cost option of $700. Kicking off the lineup with the MAC e Select is priced from $79,99 like I just mentioned. It features a 71-kilowatt battery, which can offer 470 kilometres of range. It is made with a single electric motor, and the electric motor is capable of delivering 198 kilowatts of power and 430 newton metres of torque to the rear wheels. All models will feature a 15.5-inch infotainment screen, running the latest generation of Ford Sync. A 360-degree camera is standard, along with wireless charging. Moving on to the middle of the range, the premium is priced from $92,990 before on-road costs. It carries a 91 kilowatt battery capable of 600 kilometers of range. The single motor mounted on the rear axle produces 216 kilowatts of power and 430 newton meters of torque. The premium adds LED projector headlamps, red contrast stitching, and multicolor ambient lighting. The range topping Mustang MAC E GT starts from 108990 before on rate costs. The flagship model will be the same 91 kilowatt hour battery as the premium, but it will gain a second motor on the front axle. The dual motor will deliver a combined 358 kilowatts of power and 860 newton metres of torque. It has a claimed range of 490 kilometres with a 0 to 100 kilometre sprint in just 3.7 seconds. The GT model gains Brembo Flexera Front performance brakes, as well as a new drive mode called Untamed Plus. It is effectively a race mode which is designed for closed course driving only with the ability to adjust battery cooling, steering, and throttle response. What do you guys think?
1: Oh, look, there's no getting around the fact that this is more expensive than a Tesla Model Y, and the Tesla Model Y is already off to such a strong start in, in terms of sales. I think what what will really kind of make or break the marquee here is supply. We've seen so many vehicles in this segment severely supply constrained. You look at Ionic 5, you look at EV6. Um, they're coming here in much, much, much lower numbers than the Model Y. So, of course, sales figures uh, reflect that. Um, with marque, I don't know, maybe uh, this – Pricing is a little bit more premium because Ford won't be able to get too many in. Um, but if they can get good supply, I don't think this is going to approach uh, Tesla in terms of sales just because of that price difference where I think I, I do kind of wonder who this appeals to. I've driven the Maki. It's a good car. It's, it, it is genuinely a good car. I have some, you know, criticisms of it. I think it does write very, very firmly. Um, But fundamentally, it's very modern. Um, It's got a really distinctive style. Um, On on paper, the the specifications are, are, are pretty kind of on par for this segment. Um, but I, I kind of wonder who this is going to appeal to um, because you're kind of rusted on Mustang buyers. I don't know if they're necessarily looking to go electric and I don't know if somebody who is in the market for a new Tesla Model Y will think to look at a Ford showroom. So if Ford can get good supply, um, if they market this well, uh, and we, we have kind of seen that with Ford, right, you know, the Ranger and the, the Everest get heavily marketed and it seems like some of their other models fall by the wayside and then eventually they get discontinued. So, this is a very important model for Ford because this is their first, I mean, obviously, e trans is coming here this year, but this is their first kind of electric pass passenger vehicle. I know it's an SUV, but you know what I mean. Um, so, the pricing is a little ambitious, um, but uh, let's wait and see. I'm, I'm, I'm very curious. What, what do you think, Jack?
2: I'm going to echo just basically a lot of your thoughts because in my eyes, it's a little bit pricey. Um, If I was in the market for an electric SUV right now, um, this just upfront doesn't really make me want to get this Mustang mach over a Tesla Model Y, um, just obviously from that price difference alone. I know that it's uh, only a small amount of money dif- uh, difference-wise, but um, regardless, uh, I feel like Tesla has that uh, technology and cool factor, whereas I know I haven't actually seen the Mustang mach or driven it yet. So, that might change my opinion once I get behind the wheel. I know that, Will, you've experienced that, but just looking at the, the specs and looking at pictures and stuff and seeing the price, it just doesn't wow me as much as I thought. And I would still personally be going for the Model Y. And as you mentioned, Will, as well, um, obviously supply is a big thing here too. Um, But yeah, Tesla has been killing it. And I think I'll be putting my money, money down for the Model Y, as I've said a number of times now.
0: Mm. Well, another car we're going to be talking about pricing um, might be a bit controversial as well is the Genesis GV60. We have pricing and all the details for this one, Jay.
4: Yeah, that's correct, Manny. So the updated Genesis GV60 electric SUV is arriving later this month. It comes with an additional $4,000 price tag. So now the range opens up at $107,700 before on-road costs and topping off at $114,700 before on-road costs for the performance all-wheel drive. A major highlight of this update to the Genesis is the debut of Genesis Connected Services, which allows owners to access safety, security and convenience features either in the car or on a smartphone. In addition to Face Connect, the GV60 now gets fingerprint start, which allows the driver to touch a fingerprint reader and then start the vehicle with the starter button after receiving a confirmation message on the screen. The flagship GB60 Performance all-wheel drive has received a virtual gear shift function, which provides an additional layer of involvement during the enthusiastic driving, says the brand. It's said to stimulate a sequential gear shifting experience using steering wheel paddles. For the full list of specifications and changes, you can visit the Price and Specs article via the Car Expert website. Do you guys think the $4,000 addition to the price tag is justified?
2: um yes and no um one thing you mentioned the jade which i think is um really important to kind of, uh, flagship because genesis snuck it in um without really talking too much about it is obviously in addition to the connected services uh, the gv60 is the first uh genesis vehicle to debut its connected services platform i assume this will roll out among uh, its other vehicles in its lineup at a later date but i wanted to talk about um this uh the grin shift function the the um, uh, simulated uh, paddle shifters. So that feature is meant to be coming in the Ionic Five N, which hasn't been revealed yet, and it's been kind of hyped and whatnot. This particular function, but Genesis has beaten Hyundai to the punch and put it in a car already. So, um, as you mentioned, Jade, it uh, has this uh, has paddle shifters where you can simulate like shifting gears, although electric cars don't have gears. It just simulates this and gives you a bit of. Uh, Engagement and feedback while driving. I'm really interested to see what that is like behind the wheel. I assume there's some kind of audio feedback too. So it kind of gives you that uh, sensation that you're driving an internal combustion car of sorts, but it wouldn't be like an engine sound, I assume. But um, yeah, that feature uh, really intrigues me. But um, I don't know if it'd be necessarily. Worth the $4,000 increase because the the GV60 doesn't really excite me that much. I've driven it once or twice now and it's just – it's a cool car, but it's just a bit blur. Uh, I don't don't know if I would be getting it myself. I'd much rather perhaps like an EV6 GT or – Perhaps the Ionic 5N um, once it's released, uh, that proper high-performance car. I just feel like the GV60 is trying to be everything all at once, like a luxury car, a performance car, and blah, 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 blah. So, yeah. But, yeah, I'll let you pass it on to Will now.
1: Yeah, look, I I do want to try that feature as well. I know a lot of people roll their eyes at gimmicks like this with electric vehicles, you know, the, the fake soundtracks, the fake gear, you know, gear shifts and all of that. I know that they are a little bit silly when you think about them because they don't really add that much. But I find them interesting. I think that's that's one thing you notice when you drive a lot of electric vehicles, when they all kind of sound the same. They all, I'm not saying they all blur together, but there's got there's something to be said for introducing a feature that. It gives you something different—a distinctive sound, a distinct, distinctive sensation—and also potentially features that that help bridge the gap between an electric vehicle and a combustion vehicle. Now, I actually haven't had a chance to drive the GV60 yet. I've in, I've driven the Ionic Five and the EV6 on the same platform, um, and and thoroughly enjoyed them. I think. The, the one thing I don't care for about, uh, uh, the, the one thing I don't care for about the GV60 is the styling. It's actually the one Genesis model I really don't like the looks of externally. There's some nice details, but it all, you know, every time I look at it, I, I see like a bubble back laser from the 80s. <laughs> it's,
0: just,
1: and it's not very Genesis-like,
0: is it? It's not. It's
1: too rounded. And it, did you notice as well with this update, they've actually gotten rid of that hero color that they debuted in. So you can no longer get it in Sao Paulo Lime. Um, so look, but but it's 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 obviously a good car um, underneath, um, and it is really exciting to see um, Genesis Connected Services come here. I mean, for that little, you know, hopefully it rolls out soon because you can you can do things in like a Hyundai venue that you can't do in a. In, in a much more expensive Genesis at the moment. Um, so let's hope they roll that out relatively quickly. Um, and certainly features like, you know, the the, um, the, the virtual gear shifts and, and face connector are, are interesting and, and, and do help it stand out. Um, not that it uh, needs to stand out anymore with that styling. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, we'll move on to uh, another car here. We actually spoke about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, but it was just for one variant, the uh, 2023 MG4. We have the whole range of the price and specs now, Jay.
4: Yeah, that's correct, Mandy. So MG has released the full range, like you just mentioned. The lineup does open with the Excite, which starts at 44990 nine ninety and features a sixty-four kilowatt-hour battery that can produce a hundred and fifty kilowatts of power. Now the vehicle has a claimed range of four hundred and fifty kilometers based on a WLTP cycle. There are two variations of the essence available starting with a 64 kilowatt hour battery at $47,990 before on-road costs and a 77 kilowatt hour battery extending to $55,990 excluding on-road costs. The latter offers a 180 kilowatts of power and all models are currently single motor rear-wheel drive. A more powerful X-Power dual-motor all-wheel-drive variant is currently under consideration to join the lineup closer to the launch around the second half of 2023. Unlike the existing ZS EV, which uses a combustion vehicle platform, the M4, G4 sits on the brand's new modular scalable platform which features rear-wheel drive and a 50-50 weight distribution. Standard inclusions along the range include 17-inch alloy wheels, a 7-inch digital instrument cluster, a 10.25-inch touchscreen infotainment system, Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, a four-speaker sound system and black fabric upholstery. It will be available with 7- color options, including the flagship a Volcano Orange tricolor, as MG calls it. Uh, what do you guys think, and do you think it'll do well?
1: Uh, look. MG4, uh, I think we, we probably thought it was going to be a little bit cheaper. I mean, not that this isn't well-priced for for an electric vehicle at this end of the market, um, but my understanding is there's actually a smaller battery available in other markets um, that hasn't been confirmed for Australia yet. Um, so, maybe that will come. Maybe that will bring the base price down. I mean, when you're looking at the opening price, 44990 before on-roads, um, that's about a grand more um, than a base ZS EV. Um, whereas, if you look at markets like the UK, the MG4 actually has a lower base price than the ZS EV. Um, now, that's not to say that it's it's an inferior vehicle, because from what we've what we've read, and we've got an overseas uh, review that went live a little while ago on the website, but reviews of this are actually showing it it seems to actually be a pretty good bit of kit. I mean, it's on a dedicated electric vehicle platform, unlike the ZSEV, which is based on a combustion platform. Um, it's, um, It certainly looks modern. Uh, it's a, maybe a little bit spartan inside, but, you know, the, everyone seems to love that minimalist crap. Um, just look at Teslas. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, re- I'm actually really keen to drive this, and I would love to drive this back-to-back with uh, what what could be its most direct rival here, uh, which is the GWM Aura, which does a 43990 before on-road cost. So this, this I've said it before on the podcast, but the Chinese are really just launching into this, this section of the market. You've got MG, you've got B1, ID, um, they're, they're launching more and more electric vehicles. And if the Japanese, Koreans, etc. aren't careful, they're just going to really corner the market if they haven't already done so on affordable electric vehicles.
0: Mm. What do you reckon, Jack? Do you reckon MG's bang on the money?
2: I reckon it's just uh, to kind of echo what Will said. It's a little bit pricey, um, and I, I am looking forward to uh, potentially seeing uh, that entry level model, which hasn't yet been confirmed for Australia. They could uh, slot under the 40, uh, forty grand threshold, which would be nice to see. Make it one of the cheapest electric vehicles in Australia. I don't know if that's actually happening yet, but it would be good to good to see, and it'd be a great uh, thing for MG to talk about. It'd be a great sticking point because <laughs> hmm. it's obviously what I had with the ZS EV. Uh, for a long time and from my understanding still has but um, another thing I'm really looking forward to that Jade mentioned is this uh, dual motor all-wheel drive version uh, the flagship which I wrote a story about ages ago now and I remember it came in this really cool green colour and I just loved uh, the idea of it I'd love to get behind the wheel and I know you mentioned Will that overseas reviews are looking good it's rear-wheel drive isn't it for the the single motor variants yeah because that I feel like rear-wheel drive all uh, a number of electric vehicles, are, uh, if they're front wheel drive, like the Polestar Two and the Volvo XC Forty, are switching to rear wheel drive. It's I just think it's the the drive uh, the drivetrain uh, up to have to have that rear wheel drive engagement, and um, I'm very excited to see this on Australian roads. I have a feeling it'll be very popular, and I imagine supply should be pretty good too. Um, but I don't know that to be certain just yet. Um, but yeah, I feel like it just needs. To be cheaper than the ZSEV in the UK, but it's not. But it's on the dedicated platform. So yeah, I'm, I'm. To sum it up, I am looking forward to the MG4. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Nice. Well, in with the uh, new and out with the old.
4: Jade, we're bidding farewell
0: to a Mercedes-Benz CLS.
4: Yeah, that's right. So Mercedes arguably invented the modern four-door coupe segment, but as the sedans within the segment got sleeker, unfortunately, its CLS has been squeezed out. So the CLS has now been discontinued locally after three generations as Mercedes-Benz welcomes the electric EQE. It's selling alongside its more traditional E-Class. The vehicle no longer appears on the Mercedes-Benz Australia website, including its stock locator tool, so it's official. The third generation model hasn't been very successful in Australia with just 220 units sold in 2019 as its best year. It slumped to just 30 units in 2021 and then and slightly increased to 55 sales last year. It appears likely the CLS will not be replaced considering the E-Class has a new counterpart in the EQE. No next-generation CLS has been spied testing. MS-80 spends have been discontinuing lower-volume models like the SLC and the Tudor S-Class variants. Are you guys sad to see this go? And what do you think this means?
2: I am. I always wanted to drive one. I never got the opportunity, which I'm kind of devo at now. <laughs> See, <laughs> I, um, I know that James always talked about the CLS. He went on a review ages ago now and he always kind of spooked at how it was so cool and everything. And I was really looking forward to the opportunity to drive one, but that doesn't look like it'll be the case, at least a brand new one Anymore, which is sad. Mm. I remember I picked the um the CLS uh, for a story uh, we did ages ago. Now it was a um what car would you pick for the for a price of a Rav Four Hybrid? It was a a, this story was we could include used cars and it was um so under fifty grand ish, and I chose this um, flagship um, CLS sixty three AMG, which I just loved it was a, like if you don't know the cls it's a huge like um coupe-esque uh, sedan four-door and i just love it so much and i'm sad to see it go but it does make sense because mercedes has such a crowded um, lineup in that segment because it obviously has the e-class now has the eqe and the cls just kind of makes it a bit crammed and i think it's kind of funny as well that i mentioned uh, I imagine will might mention this too but the even though it was called the cls it was based on a in a, on an e-class platform and it wasn't called a cle uh, but yeah i um i'm sad to see it go Yeah, look, uh, it is sad
1: to see it go because it's it's a good-looking car, but it just kind of doesn't really have a a point anymore. Mm. I remember when it first, when the first generation came out, people were itching about it being called a four-door coupe. Like, oh, no, coupes have two doors. Um, Now, never mind Rover, it actually introduced a four-door coupe back in the 60s. Um, And there's (laughs) certainly been plenty of sleek vehicles that weren't, you know, officially called coupes. But anyway, uh, look, it spawned a couple of imitators, but then the four-door coupe trend just seemed to die out you had the sleeker kind of five-door liftbacks, like your audi um a5 sport back and um oh gosh what else was there um later there was like the um uh, the bmw 4 series grand coupe and that seemed to kind of take over that niche and then even that just kind of seems to be spluttering a little bit because people would rather just get an suv and as jade mentioned. Sedans have been getting sleeker, so really what's the difference between having a four-door coupe, in inverted commas, and a yeah. four-door sedan nowadays when you look at something like, even like a Hyundai Sonata, and it's so much sleeker than, than previous generations of Sonata had ever been. Um, so I, I, I recommend checking out the um, the article I wrote on carexpert.com.au um, where I also share um, the sales figures um, of the current and previous generations of CLS. One final thing I will say, first generation, loved it. Styling, amazing. <laughs> so unlike anything else, I know everyone always makes the AU Falcon joke. I do see it, uh, but still fundamentally really cool looking car. Second generation, good looking, maybe not as distinctive, although the shooting brake was stunning. Third generation, yeah nice but as Mercedes have gotten more and more curvaceous it just kind of it's just kind of blends into the background and that's something you don't want from what is supposed to be like a statement piece car you know you're mm-hmm. going to market something as a ford or a coupe it's really got to bring it and now that every other mercedes is this curvaceous you know where yeah. where does that leave the cls
0: isn't that funny? I was going to ask you that exact same question, Bill. What did you think of the first, gen? And I knew you were going to say, I love it. I, I know you too well. Oh, yeah, especially
1: as an AMG. Especially. Yes, oh,
0: absolutely. That wraps up this week's car news. Jade Credentino, thank
4: you. Thanks so much, Mandy. See you later.
0: Now, we certainly have been waiting a while, but finally the second generation Volkswagen Amarok has landed and Scott Colley has been able to spend some considerable time in it on our local roads. Has the wait been worth the while?
3: Yeah, look, the Amarok, the previous gen car was on sale for 12 years or just over, which is a very long time in the motoring world. And we've seen the Ford Ranger for 12 months now on our roads or very close to it. So knowing the Amarok shares its bones with the Ranger, we've known for a long time kind of what it's going to be like. but We've not been able to actually sample the product properly. Finally, that's changed. We got to drive the Style, the Aventura and the Panamericana on roads outside of Melbourne. We did some road driving, some off-roading and got a really good feel for the new Amarok and we're now going to start getting the variants through the the garage as well to do more specific reviews. All right, so the big
1: question I think everyone wants to ask you is does this just feel like a Ranger? Is this that Mm. kind of BT50 D-Max type uh, pairing up here or does it have a distinctive feel?
3: Yeah, look, that that is the big question. It's the one that we want answered. It's interesting. Volkswagen has spent a lot of time talking about how this car is a Volkswagen. Uh, in all of their preview materials for the car, it was Volkswagen design, Volkswagen from the ground up, that sort of thing. And at this launch, we actually had Volkswagen designers on hand to talk about how they did what they did with the design of the car. So Volkswagen wants to make it very clear that it had a hand in developing the car and I think it's definitely fair to say there are some Ranger bits in there that will be recognizable if you've driven the other one, but it does feel like a VW in a number of key ways. When you open the door, for example, the indicator switches, the start button location, the window switches, they're all from the Ranger, but the materials are unique to the Volkswagen. The skin on the infotainment system is unique to the Volkswagen. The design is a little bit different to the Fords inside, and the digital dash is actually a Volkswagen digital dash. So... If we're talking about the first touch points people are going to see, it does feel V-Dub. It smells like a V-Dub as well, which I know sounds like a small thing, but <laughs> does make a difference. And it's something that hopping between lots of cars, you notice each brand has a smell. Um, in terms of the interior, the Aventura and the Panamericana are really quite lovely. The Panamericana is the off-road focus special. It's priced just above a Ranger Wild Track with the option pack fitted uh, to the Ranger that is. Um, And it's got some really interesting rough sort of leather materials. It's got baseball glove style stitching, like you used to get on an Audi TT on the seats. Um, I think it looks really cool and I think it feels really unique. It feels more special than the last Amarok did. In terms of the fundamentals, the touchscreen is still good. Um, It's interesting. It's got Volkswagen fonts and it's got some Volkswagen menus and stuff, but the voice that talks to you when you go to pair your phone is still the Ford voice that we've all heard. (laughs) Um, But the tech is quick. It looks good. It's got wireless CarPlay uh, and wireless phone charging at the top end of the range. Some of the menus are a little bit fiddly. when you jump into the driver selection system, when you want to fiddle with the driver assist, you've got to press one button, two buttons, three buttons, rather than just jumping straight in, which is a bit annoying. But it also has a Volkswagen spin on it. And the driver display is, could have been lifted straight out of a Golf for the most part, which is an improvement on the Ranger, which gets quite a small screen in front of the driver, except for in the Raptor. Um, other Volkswagen bits, the design of the transmission tunnel on the dashboard is slightly different. Um, you get cup holders in a different spot. You get, I would argue, a worse location for the trailer brake controller. And the look of it all is a little bit different as well. You get a leather trim dash at the top end and a design that, yeah, it's not quite a Touareg, but definitely if you are hopping out of a Tiguan or another Volkswagen product, will make you feel familiar. And based on what Volkswagen's told us, that was the goal. Because obviously there are limits in the architecture in terms of what you can change, but it really doesn't feel like a D-Max or a, a, a BT50 where they are the same car with different badges it does feel like the same set of tools loosely have been used to design two different vehicles.
2: Now um, I'd love to know if the, this new Amarok can still be used like a ute or is it being pushed to more of a, a premium offering?
3: It's interesting, Jack. Um, Obviously, you can still use it as a ute. Uh, the off road capabilities of this car are up relative to the previous one, pretty much across the board. You still get solid payloads at the bottom end of the range. But Volkswagen has made very clear that it is aiming this car at a premium customer, the sort of person who maybe run, <laughs> the way it was described is instead of working on the worksite, runs the worksite. <laughs> um, that's the sort of customer they've always targeted with the Amarok at the top end as well, um, something to sit alongside the KN in the garage. I don't think that means it's lost its ability to be a ute. The tray itself still fits a pallet between the wheel arches. It has more tie-downs now than it did before. And at the very top end in the Aventura, you get a roller shutter that is very useful for hiding things, although it is less useful for carrying tall or awkwardly shaped things. Um, And the towing capacity on it remains three and a half tons. So all of the sort of ute touch points that you need to hit, it definitely hits. But at the top end, I mean, the Aventura is on 21-inch wheels, Uh, which are massive for a ute, and that comes with highway terrain as opposed to all-terrain tyres. The Panamericana is more off-road focused. It's got 18-inch wheels, and then the further down the range you move, the less kit you get, and you get a different suspension tune as well. So, yeah, the top end especially, it's definitely aimed at feeling like an SUV with a tray. Um, but it also is still a ute, and, and I think Volkswagen's very aware of that. The, the designers we spoke to, including the head of design at Volkswagen Commercial, actually said one of the things they've noticed about how Australians use their utes is they actually use them. They use the tray, they tow with them, they off-road in them. They're not just a fashion statement, um, and that is something that has been built into this design, which obviously, again, shares bits and pieces with, with the Ranger, which is one of the, the better work utes out there.
1: You got to drive the turbocharged petrol engine. The Ranger doesn't offer that in this market. How does that drive? And and do you think that actually has a chance to, to get some buyers in, in in what is now a diesel-dominated part of the market?
3: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the range of engines on offer in this Amarok uh, are from a single turbo four-cylinder diesel at the very bottom end through the two-litre bi-turbo engine that you get elsewhere in the, the Ford world in the Ranger The three-liter V6, again, shared with the Ranger. And then there's a 2.3-liter turbo four-cylinder. That engine has versions of it have worked in the Mustang, the Focus RS, the Focus ST. It's a really interesting engine to feature in a ute. And it's something that Ford doesn't offer. In fact, none of the dual cab rivals for the Amarok really do offer something like it. Most of their petrol engines are naturally aspirated. Ones at the bottom end of the range aimed at sort of fleet specials, or in the case of the big American pickups, their big thirsty V8s. To drive, it's quite interesting. It's weird turning on a dual cab ute and not getting diesel clatter because I'm just so used to pressing that button and there's a sound and a feel that all of them have. Um, it's smooth, it's quiet, it's pretty punchy. I think it's the sort of car that people who maybe want to replace a Tiguan or a Golf or something like that and move into the ute as a family car will really feel comfortable in because to drive, it, it does feel kind of like a uh, kind of like an oversized SUV with that engine. It could be even better. Um, it, it's a little bit frustrating that there's no paddles behind the wheel. You get those buttons on the side of the transmission selector like Ford does that mean that when you do want to you know, knock it down a couple of gears and get into the meat of what the turbo has got to offer, it's a bit more frustrating. But, yeah, to drive it does bring something different relative to the rest of the dual-cab world, definitely. And Volkswagen has been honest about the fact. It doesn't know how many it's going to sell necessarily, but it's something different, and it's going to draw in a different type of buyer potentially. Um, I don't think it's where the meat of sales are going to go though. They're going to go to the V6 and and Volkswagen has made that really clear as well. The previous gen was V6 dominated. The new one has a a better four cylinder engine on offer and is likely to sell more four cylinders than they have before, but the V6 will still dominate. Um, And that's a good thing because it is a good engine. Uh, We know it's really talky down low. And combined with a 10-speed automatic, it kind of feels like it's in the right gear at the right time to do whatever you need it to do. It's also pretty refined. There's a bit of diesel clatter or sort of, you know, vibration in the cabin. But the engine is sort of in a roundabout way sourced from the Land Rover world back in the day. And it does feel more refined than the smaller engines that you get in some of the rivals. Uh, it, it suits what you would expect of an Amarok, which is a grunty V6 with a, a decent dose of refinement on top.
1: So now that you've driven, what, like two Amarok's now and about 50 million Rangers like the
3: rest <laughs> of us, which you, would you choose, Ranger or Amarok? Yeah, good question. Uh, not one I have an answer for at this stage. I'm sorry. Um, I think that there really are differences between the two that, that are worth noting. Um, and the Amarok that I most enjoyed driving, I think, was the Panamericana. Um The range has twin tube dampers on the base models and then a more sophisticated single tube setup on the Panamericana and the Aventura. With that fitted, the car does, especially the Aventura on its 21-inch wheels, it feels halfway between a regular Amarok and a Walkenshaw W580S in how it drives. Nice. There's less body roll than you get in a lot of other utes. It feels quite direct at the front end and the ride's a little bit firmer, especially in the Aventura, than it is in some utes. But that pays off when you're on a twisty road or a road where you want to have it go. It, it doesn't feel like it wants to wobble and fall over, which um, I know it's a basic way to describe it, but that is the feeling you get from a lot of dual cab when you go faster than about 10Ks an hour around a corner. Uh, the Panamericana is more comfortable. It's on 18-inch wheels instead of 21s, but it's got the same suspension tune. I think that's my pick of the range. I'm really looking forward to putting it side by side with a Ranger because I do think the V-Dub has a Volkswagen feeling about it. Uh, In isolation, it feels like it, it handles a little bit better. The interior is a little bit different. But there's still stuff that the Ford does really well. The Volkswagen doesn't have the step on the side of the bed, for example. And the interior design, the trailer brake controller is hidden away under the dash in a spot that obscures your USB ports. Little things like that that I know sound really trivial and It'll probably annoy Volkswagen that we're focusing on the differences more than we are the strengths of the Amarok. <laughs> but they are the sort of things that if you're driving both of them, you, you'll want to find out. And they're also the sort of things that you can only find out when you get the cars side by side. Look, at this stage, I think if I were to to pick a favourite, I really do like the Amarok Panamericana, and I think it, it shapes up nicely against a wild track. But until we got the cars side by side, I'm not really ready to, to give you one or the other, I'm sorry. <laughs>
2: Now, I'd love to know about pricing and how it compares to, say, the Ranger range. <laughs> I say that sentence all the time, but then I think about it after the fact, and Ranger range. But yeah, how,
3: how is the, the Amarok priced? So, pricing starts at just over $50,000 for the base core model. Um, that is the one that you will see in our price and specs that has a, a white body, black wheels, black mirror caps and bits and pieces it really is a an enthusiast or a tradey special you can get that with a uh, with a manual which is quite unique um, $56,990 for the life and then Volkswagen is expecting the style to be the best seller uh, that is priced at 66990 before on roads for the 2 liter by turbo and 7990 for the V6 with the 10 speed auto That's 7990 price tag you can add an option pack too, and it aligns quite neatly with the wild track. The Panamericana is $75,990. That's the off-road focus special, and it's only available with the 3-litre V6. And then at the top end of the range, the Aventura is available with the V6 or the 2.3-litre petrol engine. They're both 7990 before on-roads. They, the, the, the Ute is it's expensive. Um, I wouldn't say it's poor value because you get a lot of stuff across the range, and it does offer something that some other Utes don't. But seventy nine nine ninety at the top end is more expensive than a Ranger Wildtrak with the options packs fitted to it. It's more expensive than a Ranger Platinum, and you know it's a lot to spend on a Ute. But Volkswagen's argument uh, would be that the Aventura in particular is the most luxurious and most SUV like Ute on the market in Australia. Before you get to something like a Silverado or a Ram fifteen hundred, and that's how it justifies that price.
0: We look forward to that upcoming car expert comparison very soon. Uh, But in the meantime, you uh, can read more on the uh, Volkswagen Amarok right now. That review is live. Thank you, Scully. Thanks, Mandy. I've got another review for this week. Will, uh, tell us all about your time at the Mercedes-Benz EQE launch.
1: Yes. uh, So it was nice to go to a Melbourne launch um, because I'm I'm, I'm splitting my time across Brisbane and Melbourne, uh, but usually when there are Melbourne launches, People who live in Melbourne go to them. Uh, so I had a chance to uh, go to a launch here uh, and take the EQE uh, on some roads that I've actually been to before, but I know that they are good roads. So um, we're out around Hillsville Way for those uh, for those of you. Um, victorians listening you'll you'll know where that is um so it was a lot of winding kind of mountain roads a lot of drizzle because it's melbourne of course um (laughs) uh but it was good to to put the eqe through its paces so we got to drive the rear wheel drive eqe 300 the all-wheel drive eqe 350 and the mercedes amg eqe 53 uh for those of you who aren't aware what the eqe is um it is a kind of roughly e-class sized um electric sedan that's on a dedicated electric vehicle platform um, that is shared with the EQS, which has already been launched. Um, and they're both spawning SUV versions called very originally the eqe suv and eqs suv um now i imagine those are probably going to be the volume sellers or at least they'll sell better than the eqe and eqs just because that's where the market is but if we've seen one part of the market where people are willing to still buy a sedan um it's certainly that kind of premium electric space and look how many tesla model threes are on the road that's i mean that's a sedan Mm -hmm. um so the eqe um is certainly interesting uh, to look at um it's um it's very aerodynamic um for those of you who haven't seen it maybe just uh maybe just google it um it uh in person it it Looks a little better, I guess. Um, we we had we saw one example in in white, and and maybe that kind of hides the lines a little bit. It's it's very 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 curvaceous, but it's also it's about as uh, kind of um, curvaceous as something wedge shaped can be, if that makes sense. It's got a kind of stumpy tail, whereas the EQS is longer and it actually has a lift back, and it, it's it's a little bit kind of better proportioned. But look. Let's not spend too much time on the looks. You'll either love it or you'll hate it. Uh, let's talk about the car itself. Um, so the EQE 300 is priced at $134,900 before on-road costs. Um, so I know the pricing for the new E-Class hasn't been announced yet, but compared to a current base E-Class, that's roughly, you know, almost thirty grand more. But it's hard to kind of compare spec for spec um, because the EQE 300 has a decent amount of standard kit. Um, the EQE 350 has the same kit, but it's got more power and all-wheel drive. It's 154900 before on-roads. And then the big daddy of the range, not the Mahindra Scorpio,
0: <laughs>
1: is the uh, Mercedes-AMG EQE 53, which is priced at 214900
0: before on-road
2: costs. Wow. Wow. Now, I'd love to know, Will, you mentioned how the EQE is uh, very aerodynamic and efficient, but is it uh, also dynamic? Does it have some sort of character when you drive it? Does it feel sporty is what I'm trying to ask in multiple different ways, I suppose?
1: Uh, look, it's there's no hiding the fact that this is a heavy car. You know, it's it's like what... Uh, 2.5 tons, give or take. So it's heavy. It's got a big battery. Um, that's always going to numb things a little bit. And I think if you'd probably drove it back to back with an with an E-Class, which is quite, quite a bit lighter, you're going to feel that kind of difference there. But in terms of the way it drives, um, we got to drive the uh, 300 and 350 with passive suspension, but you can get optional air suspension on those, which I would 100% be taking that option box. Um, air suspension is standard on the EQE 53 AMG. Um, if we look just at the Benz EQEs, um the, the EQE 300 um, has got a 0 to 100 kilometre an hour time of 7.3 seconds um, and outputs of 180 kilowatts and 550 newton metres. Doesn't sound terribly impressive. And then the EQE 350, it's got a second electric motor, bumps outputs up to 215 kilowatts, 765 newton metres and reduces the 0 to 100 time to 6.3 seconds. Um the difference between them in feel is actually not that remarkable. Um, I wouldn't say either feels slow because the, ver- the the benefit of having electric vehicles is you get that kind of instantaneous torque, so they'll more they'll very easily keep up with traffic. There's no problem there. In terms of handling, um, throwing these around corners, they they feel tidy. Uh, body control is pretty good. Um, I wouldn't say that they're they're the most engaging. I wouldn't say they've got the most you know kind of steering feel, but. They don't feel like big floaty barges to to throw around a corner. Um, So you've got good body control. Your ride comfort is generally good. We did notice sometimes with mid-corner bumps it could feel a little bit harsh and you'd get a little bit of that kind of lateral movement there. Um, Ticking that option box for air suspension, which is honestly no, I can't remember off the top of my head how much that air suspension costs. Um, you'll see it in my review on carexpert.com.au. Uh, but it seems pretty reasonable in, in the grand scheme of things. Uh, it's $3,800. So if you're already spending that much on, on, a, on a luxury, nice. then why not? Exactly. That's a much more reasonable option price than uh, something in the AMG model. Um, so we drove the AMG and the one that we had had the optional Hyperscreen. Now, I would not be ticking the option box for this because as cool as it looks, and it does look very, very, very cool, it is also very, very, very expensive. Um, So the HyperScreen setup um, costs (gasps)
0: $15,900. What? (laughs) Oh, my God. It's almost the price of a new car. (laughs) Yes. well.
1: Uh, showing your age there, Mandy. Nothing's been 15900 for a while. <laughs> for
0: less than the price
1: of an MG3, you can that's, get the MBUX hyperscreen.
0: That's what I meant to say, yes. There we go. That's insane.
1: That's <laughs> insane. Uh, as cool as it is, and it's a really impressive bit of technology, because for those of you who aren't familiar with, with the Hyperscreen, it's basically one glass housing um, under which there's a screen in front of the passenger, um, there's a central screen, and there's the digital instrument cluster. It basically goes from pillar to pillar. It uses uh, OLED technology. Um, very, very, very slick. But really, in terms of functionality, what you're getting is a passenger display. Because you've already got a very large central touchscreen with a standard setup. You've already got a digital instrument cluster. And how much, how much more fun do you want to give a passenger when they can just reach across to the main screen anyway? So, um, I don't imagine many people will be ticking that option box. Um, and you can't get it on the regular EQEs. Um, but, uh, and enough about the hyper screen. Let's talk about how the AMG actually drives. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Channeling my inner crawl there. Oh goodness, we're all turning into him. <laughs> this is what happens when you imitate people that much, it starts to leech in. Um in terms of the way it drives, so compared to the Benz, there's obviously a lot more power on tap here. So it is a dual motor all wheel drive setup. Uh, But outputs are 460 kilowatts and 950 newton metres of torque. That's a zero to 100 kilometre hour time of 3.5 seconds. You can actually also specify a dynamic pack, which will up those outputs to 505 kilowatts and 1,000 newton metres for bragging rights, I guess, because I, I, I can't imagine why you'd need to have that much much uh, power. Uh, it does reduce the 0 to 100 to 3.3 seconds. Can confirm, drove the car without the dynamic pack, uh, took off really quickly, uh, and I think there's still an imprint at the back of my head in that headrest. So <laughs> it's, as, it's as quick as you would really expect it to be. Um, with the AMG, um, you've got the standard air suspension, you've got standard rear axle steering, which is optional on the Benz models. Um, and you get a different sound experience. So there's three different artificial sounds to choose from in the Benz EQE, and they've all got weird marketing names like uh, Sonic Flux or Axial Waves, or I can't remember what they are. One of them sounds pretty cool, uh, I will say. Uh, I know a lot of people hate that fake sound, but... Yeah, it was like, oh, this is not bad. Uh, I've certainly heard worse. The one in the AMG is based on the drive mode, I, I, and you can customize it. But um, when you flick it over to Sport Plus, it's got this really nice low kind of hum to it that you can actually also hear from outside the car as well. So I think that that that's something that you kind of – you really miss out on with electric cars. You miss out on that kind of sound. Um, we are talking about it before with, you know, Genesis having the artificial gear shifts and, and, and whatnot. Um so at least you've got that sound there. And you know what? If it annoys, you just turn it off uh, fundamentally. Uh, but look, it's very quick. And this is a heavy car, but you can really pelt it around the corners, um, at which we did. Um, and it, it manages to keep that mass in check. And you've got sensational grip. And it... I look I, I dare say if you, probably if you were coming out of an e63 you're going to feel like that the e53 is maybe missing a little bit there I'm gaining a lot because it's considerably heavier um Mercedes does say that it's that 53 cars are not intended to be that kind of all-out track weapons that 63. Uh, cars are Um, and they they haven't indicated that there's going to be an EQE 63 coming although you know it's only a matter of time before they do do an electric 63 of some sort Um, but when you actually look at um, specifications of uh, the uh, EQE 53 against an E63 it's actually got more power and torque but it's not really any quicker and that's because of that extra weight there so I mentioned their the power and torque figures before uh, and that zero to 100 time of 3.5 or even 3.3 seconds. Um, now, if you look at an E63 with a bi V8, you've got 450 kilowatts and 850 newton meters and a zero to 100 time of 3.4 seconds. So, this is E63 quick. Whether it is E63 engaging is another question. Um, but if you're looking for a really brisk kind of electric executive express, Right now, this section of the market doesn't have a whole lot. You've got the Porsche Taycan, which, if you want these kind of outputs and this kind of zero to one hundred time from a Taycan, you're looking at spending more. You've got BMW i5 and Audi um, uh, A6 e-tron uh, still have, haven't been kind of uh, detailed for Australia yet. They haven't even been revealed actually, uh, as of the time of recording. Um, and then you've got the Audi e-tron GT, which is Absolutely stunning um, and and probably something you should really crush up the EQE with. Uh, But there's not a massive amount else out there. Uh, Whereas when you look at the Benz EQE, um, there's still not a massive amount of competition out there for that either at this point in time, uh, except for the Genesis Electrified g 80
2: now, I've talked a fair bit about how uh, sporty and dynamic the um, this EQE and AMG EQE is, but you also touched on at the start how uh, it's meant to be very uh, aerodynamic and efficient, and given it's an electric vehicle, that is very important in my eyes. How efficient is the EQE, and what are the range figures like?
1: Very good question, because when I was writing these reviews, uh, which will be live on carexpert.com.au uh, by the time you're listening to this, um, I was Looking at uh, range figures of of comparable vehicles, and it really does impress me um, how efficient Teslas are and how good their range figures are, even after all these years. So the Model S is actually not on sale at the moment in Australia. It hasn't been on sale for a couple of years, and it's certainly – Getting very old now, um, but when you actually look at the range figures, it still actually comes up ahead of the EQE. And in terms of uh, claimed energy consumption, it's also um, it also performs a little bit better there. Um, so not bad for um, for something that's as old as it is. Um, in terms of range. WLTP figures, so they tend to be a little bit more realistic. Uh, You're looking at 508 kilometres for the EQE 300, 462 kilometres for the EQE 350, um, with claimed energy consumption of 20.1 kilowatt-hours per 100 kilometres and 22.5 kilowatt-hours per 100 kilometres, respectively. Then when you step up to the EQE AMG, uh, you're looking at range of 435 kilometres and energy consumption of 21.8 kilometres. Kilowatt hours per hundred kilometers. Um, look, I, I put in the reviews uh, the, the figures that we saw on test. Um, the Benz was probably a, a, the best, so the Benzers were a little bit closer to those claims. But again, it, it's it's a test loop. Uh, um, we we're doing a mix of freeway driving. We were doing some mountain driving. We weren't really doing any inner city commuting, so I'm not really sure how how representative that is of 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 your 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 average kind of EQE drivers commute, for example. Um, but uh, speaking of your, your commute, I, I will say one thing that really surprised me about the AMG is we put it in Sport Plus because of the roads we were going on. And we just promptly left it in Sport Plus hmm. um, because it's actually with that air suspension, it is still bloody comfortable in Sport Plus mode. Um, the roads we were, we were on were, you know, not the most jagged ones I've ever been on, but they certainly weren't, you know, billiard table smooth. Um and yet the EQE 53 uh, was was really, really very comfortable. Um, so that's nice. And I, I think that kind of uh, plays into that whole executive express thing that they're kind of going for there. Um, because it's, it's not a track weapon, but it's very, very, very quick. So um, and it's also very comfortable where it could be a little bit more comfortable. Is in the back seat. Um, so all EQE models, regardless of variant, have you know the same you know rear seat dimensions, uh, which means you've got a flat floor, which is nice, um, and what you come kind of expect of an electric vehicle. Um, and you also have plenty of legroom and knee room, but headroom is not great. All models come standard in Australia with a panoramic sunroof, and I could actually sit. I'm 180 centimeters tall, so five eleven. Um, I could sit in the middle seat, and my head wouldn't really be touching the the glass of the sunroof. But if you kind of sit on the outboard seats, where the roof kind of fares in, I'm t- I'm showing you this with my with my hands, which nobody who's listening. <laughs> helpful will be for a podcast. <laughs> yes, exactly. This is not a video podcast. Just imagine me moving my hands around. Um, <laughs> the roof kind of fares in a little bit. Um, so you know, if you're kind of going around a turn, you might find your kind of your head uh, hitting against there, and that's that's partly because. It, Partly, it's mainly because this is got such a sleek exterior design, and it's got that kind of rakish roofline that it's not as boxy as an E-Class. So while you do miss out on the, the drive line hump um, that you'll, you'll find in a, uh, in an E-Class, uh, so legroom is a little bit better. And you it, technically the, the car has a longer wheelbase as well, so you, you're going to find probably a little bit more legroom um, and more space to stretch out there. Headroom actually isn't amazing, so people who are taller might find it a little bit tight there.
0: Uh, so, wrapping up, Will, which one would you pick out of the range? I'd actually pick one that
1: we didn't drive. Um, so, you can get, as I mentioned before, the EQE 300 and 350 with the optional Aromatic air suspension. And that's where I would be going because I didn't feel a massive difference in power between 300 and 350, I don't really necessarily need the extra traction of all-wheel drive. So the base model 300 um, strikes me as as the the best choice there. Add the air suspension. I think you've kind of got a winner there. Uh, What I'd really love to do though, is to compare this back to back with not only the BMW i5 when it comes out, but also the Genesis Electrified G80. I haven't had a chance to drive that yet, but on paper, the Electrified G80 actually has more range and better energy efficiency, which is a bit surprising for something that's based on a a combustion platform. Uh, So we'd love to drive those two back to back. Uh, but look, if you can get past the styling of the EQE, uh, there's a lot here that should appeal to existing Mercedes buyers. The tech will all feel very familiar. Um, the, you know, the interfaces, uh, the instrument cluster, etc. cetera. Um, the interior is is kind of typical 2023 Mercedes, you know, um, I think I call it Macau casino style ambient lighting. Um, generally pretty nice materials. Uh, I think probably what would be the biggest impediment to the EQE is One, that styling, but two, the people will probably just want to wait for the EQE SUV, which won't be able to beat it in terms of range or efficiency, but will offer that SUV style that, you know, buyers really gravitate
0: towards now. Mm. All right. Well, you can see what Car Expert rating Will gave it with the review live now at carexpert.com.au. That's a wrap for this week's Car Expert podcast. What cars have we got coming up in the garage, Will?
1: Uh, So... Oh, TBD. Um, we have something uh, that we're going to be doing as a team next week that I probably can't talk about at this point in time, um, but there are many cars involved. Ooh, make a I, comparison. I could not be more cryptic if I tried. i will not <laughs> confirmed, or will deny <denied> that.
0: <laughs> um,
1: but uh, basically we, we are doing something very exciting. Um, we will be sharing more about it soon, uh, so stay tuned. Fantastic.
0: And Jack, where's the team off to next week? I think you're off somewhere as well, aren't you?
2: Yes, yeah, I am. I'm taking off to India. I'm very excited for that. Finally, I am heading over to uh, India with Mahindra. If you remember, I did the uh, the launch review, uh, launch program a couple of weeks ago for the Scorpio in Brisbane. And um, I'm following that up with yeah, a trip to India where I'm going to get a chance to drive um, the XUV 700 over in India. And I'm also gonna, uh, going to get to have a tour and experience all of the production facilities they and are uh, proving ground, and so yeah, um, it's a long time coming, is what I will say. If you, I might have talked about it on the podcast before, but it was uh, earlier uh, planned for earlier in the year, and a few things happened, and uh, things got swapped around. But I'm finally getting to go over, which I'm very excited. Before, uh, very excited to do. I'm uh, flying in business class. It's my first uh, first time actually um, going overseas for work with Car Expert here. So, um, extremely keen. Uh, I, I mightn't sound it in my voice, but just know that I'm, like, really excited. <laughs> i just, like, trying to maintain a You'll professional tone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You'll love it.
1: Mightn't hear it in your voice. We can practically hear you
0: bouncing yes. up and down in your chair. Yeah. yeah. We, we, I think we need to peel him off the walls, Will. <laughs> And um, is any, anything else happening or that was just it, Jack? Oh.
2: Yes, yeah, we do have some more events happening too uh, next week. Um, we have uh, my, uh, Matt Campbell, who's uh, one of our contributors, going over uh, doing a Victorian uh, program for the Mazda CX-8 and Mazda 6, which recently, recently got some uh, tweaks for the 2023 model year. Uh, then we have uh, uh, Albor, should say, sorry, doing uh, the Lexus RZ. And then uh, last of all, we also have uh, a Walk and Walkinshaw uh, Group Day. Uh, drive. So, yeah, lots of things happening and also that secret thing that we can't talk about yet.
0: Oh, I can't wait to hear about that. Jack Quick and William Stopford, thank you so much.
2: Thank you very much, Mandy. Thanks, Mandy.